we want to give uh, loads and loads of time to an incredible man. There, there are certain heroes that I've got, and we, we've got to know Rahil these last few years, and he, uh, he is, a, he is a, an absolute hero. We, we've laughed together, we've cried together, we, we've done a lot of laughing together, and uh, he brings a lot of wisdom. So he's one of our trustees as well, and he brings a lot of wisdom. And so why don't we get him up, give him a massive round of applause. And um, <laughs> let's, pray f- let's pray for him and bless him. Uh, so Rahil, he is a, some, some of us have said, he, is he a Christian? He, he is a Christian. <laughs> he is. He loves Jesus. Uh, he is a Christian. So, uh, I'm one of your trustees. So he's one of our trustees. So, we, yeah, he has to be. So uh, uh, we just open our, our ears and our minds to receive all, all of the goodness in this man. Uh, and, Father, we bless him. We bless his words. And uh, we thank you for uh, what you've done in him. And we, we, just, uh, we just say yes and amen. And we receive your... Uh, your your food to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Thank you very much. Sure. Um, thanks for having me here. It's a pleasure. It's an honor. I love these two. They've played a, a key role in my life, in my journey, especially in my inner journey. And um, I'm grateful to be here. It's taken a while to come here. I think I've been a trustee for how long now? Oh, for a year. <laughs> Oops. Um, so, yeah, I'm surprised they haven't kicked me out yet. So I'll, I'll start my journey with a little background of East African, Asian Indians in this country. Um, some of you know or may not know that East Africa, Kenya, Uganda, Tanzania were British colonies. They were formerly called East Africa as one sort of group. So in the 60s and 70s, a lot of Indians came to this country after those countries acquired independence from the British. So my ethnicity is Gujarati Indian, but my great-granddad moved from India to Kenya in 1898 to help the British build the railways across East Africa. So my parents are Gujarati, their parents are Gujarati. You'll see a lot of Gujaratis in this area of, of Tooting and Balam and, and Clapham as well. So my parents are Gujarati, their parents were Gujarati, but they were born in Kenya. So in our culture, there's a lot of Swahili, a lot of East African cuisine, and even in our language, I didn't realize till much later that I wasn't speaking real authentic Gujarati. It had Swahili in it as well. And that, that unfolded much later in my life. So my grandfather had a huge construction business in Kenya in the 40s and 50s. I never saw my grandfather. At that time, in the 40s and 50s, there was a lot of um, disturbance across East Africa. The local Africans, for various reasons, were unhappy with the British and they were unhappy with very wealthy Indian families as well. It was quite complicated, and I don't want to go into that right now. But they were shutting down certain businesses, and my grandfather's business, Vijay Constructions, had he had 4,000 people working for him in the 40s and 50s, and without any reason whatsoever, certain politicians asked my grandfather that he has to wind his company down, shut the whole thing down. 
And just on hearing that news, my grandfather had a heart attack and he died at the age of 52. So I never saw my grandfather. My dad is the eldest of four. And my mother is the eldest of three. So my dad had the responsibility to wind everything down, all the projects for the US government, for the British government, he had to finish off. And everything was wound down and sold off. And so my parents came to England in the 60s with literally nothing, just a British passport. My dad had a British passport, and my mother had a British overseas passport and came to England. So initially we moved to Milton Keynes, and that's where my story sort of, in, in my book, it sort of starts there, in a way. I only remember my dad and mum working 16, 18 hours a day in a typical newsagent's shop, not knowing why they're working so hard and what's going on. I was only five, and I remember vividly going with my father to the cash and carry while he would stock the car up with Coke crates and cigarettes and, and whatnot and bring it back to the shop. So that's my childhood memory. My parents came from a Hindu background, but they weren't staunch believers. They were Hindu for the, for the sake of just calling themselves as Hindus. Uh, Hinduism very quickly, just to give you a, a quick insight, is a geographical terminology. The British and the Persians, when they went into India, they saw these peoples worshipping different gods, pagan gods, and realized that the civilization originated from the Sindh Valley. Uh, the Sindh River today flows in Pakistan, which was formerly India. So they, through geological findings, realized that these peoples originate from this valley. So the British and Persians then called the people of that land. Um, they couldn't say Sindh, so they called them Indians. And that's how the word originated. And they couldn't comprehend the different aspects of their worship, so they called all of the people Hindus, based off the word Sindh. Does that make sense so far? Yeah? So Hinduism is very broad and, and strange. Some Hindus believe in the soul, others don't even believe in the soul. Some eat meat, others don't eat meat. It's very diverse. So just to give it a box, uh, the Brits and the Persians called everyone Hindus, but they really vary philosophically and doctrinally. My parents were just Hindus for the sake of calling themselves Hindus um, when we were in Milton Keynes. Um, but at that time, I remember my dad's friend who we hosted while we were in Nairobi, came to our home in Milton Keynes. And he said, there's a certain spiritual Hindu guru who's the head of this very fast-growing organization. He's coming to England, and would you like to host him? So I was about five, six years old, and I remember them chatting about all of this. And for the first time, you know, my dad said yes to something like that. And he wasn't that much into it. So all I remember in this home, this small little home in Milton Keynes, was one day these people dressed in orange robes came to our home with shaven heads. And for me, it was like something from a sci-fi movie, you know, when there's an invasion going on. And I ran into the room opposite our living room, and I remember 
looking through the door. I, le- I kept the door slightly open, and I was just watching them, and they were chanting and applying red vermilion powder to each other's foreheads, and there was incense and all this going on. My dad tried to call me out, but I, I just said I'll start crying, and I did. That, was my, that was my excuse all the time, I'll start crying, and I was left alone. So that's all I remember of that incident, that my parents suddenly were engaging with this, this man, this guru who was dressed in orange, and whom a community, a very affluent Indian community in UK, believed to be God, literally God on earth. A few years later, fast forward, we moved to northwest London in Northwood. Um, that's where most of my, my, my journey sort of um, took many twists and turns. So my father was very keen for me and my elder brother to gain a lot of insight into British life. My father was very, very impressed with the way the British ran empire. So he loved the gifts that the British had of administration, diplomacy, management. Um, and so he wanted us to study in a school in a, in a really good area where we would integrate with British people on a Monday to Friday basis and just understand the gifts, understand how they gain the insight of running such a huge empire. And... Besides that, he just wanted us on the weekends to be within our own Gujarati community. So you'll see, you'll see that in England, you'll see that in Balam, you'll see that in Tooting, that people would like to stay in their little communities so they maintain their culture, their language, their cuisine. In that era, in the 70s, you know, it was really strange for Indians to come to this land and suddenly integrate with the British. They were happy to work with the British, but then having the British in your home or going to another uh, uh, a local British person's home it was really strange. So on the weekend, what we did, we went to a local Hindu temple in northwest London. It was near Finchley at the time. So I hated going to the Hindu temple. I just hated the whole thing. Every Saturday, we had to go to this temple, and it was boring. It was stuffy inside. It was about this big. It was an old church building. It was about this big, and it was just rammed, and it was just so stuffy and annoying. And I used to cry each Saturday, and I didn't want to go. But I was forced to go. On the other side, I loved my schooling. It was a very Christian schooling. I loved my teachers. I loved taking part in the nativity play at Christmas time, and you know, sort of making angels from paper and all that kind of stuff. And I really did well in my Christian studies. But on the weekends, I was in the Hindu temple. So I was living in two different worlds consistently throughout my early teens and and, uh, mid-teens. When I was um, 16, by that time, things in my heart had changed quite drastically. At home, matters were not so good. So my book and my stories is, is a lot about how we make decisions and choices based upon not knowing unmet needs. When we, when, we not, when we don't know we have unmet needs, we make certain decisions and choices in life and try and fill those needs. So at home, my parents were arguing quite a lot about finance. My dad had built wealth fairly quickly. Uh, it wasn't to the standard of what they had in Kenya, but he did really, really well in a very short time. And um, 
he then worked really hard and, and my mother and father were just consistently arguing at home. My brother wasn't at home, my elder brother. He was studying at my friend's place. So I was in this home setting, just in this environment of fear all the time and anxiety where my parents were arguing. So what I did as an outlet, I spent more time in the temple. I went to the temple on weekdays, I went to the temple on weekends, and I prayed, I swept the floors, I met friends there, made friends there, and I sort of used that as an outlet. And I got really plugged in to the temple. So this particular denomination believed that the guru of the whole organization is literally God. He is God. God speaks through him. Whatever he says, God is saying. And all the meditation, all the chanting, all of the focus is on the guru himself. So today, it's the wealthiest Hindu organization in the world. It's very affluent across many, many nations. So I was 16, and by that time, I was in charge of the young youth activities. And I was asked to speak in the congregation at the time, based upon one of the Hindu scriptures. There were about 3,000 people there, and, and I found it quite easy. It was normal. And, and to my surprise, the crowd sort of went crazy. But more than anything, the guru who was seated there, he acknowledged every sentence. He acknowledged everything I was saying. He sort of pointed to the crowd and said, yeah, look, listen to him, listen to him. So for me, there was a sudden surge of recognition and acknowledgement from A, God, and be the head of this whole community that I'm involved in. And it was, for me, such a massive upliftment to the fear and anxiety that I was living in at home. So after the speech, I went to bow to the guru, which is tradition. You bow to his feet and you, you take his blessings. And that's when he said to me, why don't you be a a priest, a Hindu priest, you'll be a very good priest. So I thought, yeah, that's it. I was only 16. I thought, let's let's be a Hindu priest, you know. So I'll come to that in, in, in a second. Um, my parents were really upset with the idea because Gujarati Indian parents, they want you to go to the temple but not go over the top. They still want you to get married. They want you to do business. You know, Gujarati Indians, they love business. They love finance. They love wealth. They love that whole side of life. Now, going into a complete monastic lifestyle was completely alien to my parents. They, they acknowledged it, but they didn't think it was a good idea. What happened after my GCSEs, I did really well in my GCSEs. So my parents gave me permission to go to the States to travel with the Guru in 1988. So my parents were in a situation within the community who were following one person as God who was on my side. I wanted to be a priest, and so did my elder brother. And my parents were like, no. But if they went against the guru, they would by default be against the whole community. So they were really, really stuck. So tension at home grew really high. I was allowed to go to the States and I traveled with this guru for 45,000 miles across the whole of the US. 
And in so many meetings, he would pick me out from the audience and he would acknowledge my presence in the audience. He would just say great things about me and so on and so forth. And I used to wonder what's going on. And in Hindu philosophy and doctrine, a lot of, a lot of it's to do with reincarnation and past lives. So people used to say it's because of your past lives, you've done so many good deeds and that's why he's acknowledging you. You've had spiritual advancement based upon your past life. So I took it as that. I came back home in October 1988 and tension with my parents grew further. They just didn't want us to become priests. And on this side, the guru had given a blank card for me to phone him whenever I wanted. So I didn't have to go through any trustees or senior priests. I could phone him whenever I wanted. So here I was now at the age of 17, just having access to this really powerful leader, I could phone him, chat to him, have access to his room, and just be with him whenever and wherever I wanted. Um, and on this side, my parents were struggling. Now the time came when, after my A-levels, I wanted to go and train to be a priest. So I acquired permission from my parents, and they said, no, you're not, you're, we're not, because you have to have written consent, and they weren't giving written consent. They stopped coming to the temple, so it was a whole tension zone. And internationally, because of the guru's recognition, my name sort of became a household name very quickly. Because with the guru, there's always a group of other priests traveling. And one of the priests writes everything down every day, whatever happens in the guru's life. Whoever he meets, whoever he acknowledges, whoever he talks to is written down, is documented. So there's, there's libraries upon libraries just filled with a diary of the guru. And those diaries go all over the world, and they're read in different assemblies. So suddenly, my name became a household name on this side, and I was drawn to that. I was drawn to the attention, drawn to the recognition, drawn, you know, obviously, because of pride. And this side, my parents were not having it. And so I phoned the guru at one stage, and um, he said to me, like, look, why don't you just, um, if they don't say anything, then just leave and run away. So on October 25th, 1991, my brother and I, it was quite a clever plan. It wasn't really clever, but it was, it was quite foolproof. We, we ran away from home. I went to India and decided to go into training. So in India, there's a monastery on a 250-acre campus with classrooms, dormitories, and we did six years of intense training to be a priest. So those six years, they involve study of world religions, Indian doctrines, and living a very disciplined lifestyle of celibacy. No money, you don't even touch money. You're completely given to the organization. You're completely surrendered. They look after every aspect of your life. So those six years were quite intense. But it's in my first month that my struggle started. I suddenly went with all guns blazing into this thing. And in my very first month, we were praying in the temple campus upstairs. It was corporate worship. And at that time, this really silent but authentic voice in my left ear said that, are you sure you've done the right thing? Are you in the right place? And it really shook me in my first month. And I remember all the other hundred priests were engaged in the worship, the drums and the bells and the chanting. And I was just staring over the balcony, just really feeling isolated and, and stuck. 
but I couldn't share that with anyone because I had run away from home. I was suddenly this chosen one. Out of all of his 800 priests, I was literally his favorite. And now I was stuck. There was guilt, there was shame. If I go back, there's condemnation. It was the, the full works. So this internal struggle began in my first year of training. And that struggle continued for many, many years. At the same time, my health deteriorated. In those six years of training, I had malaria five times, and brain malaria twice. That health journey just took a, a different um, you know, route completely. But what happened in those six years, the guru took me out of training and he took me on two world tours to Europe, East Africa, America, Canada, just to get exposure to different cultures and, and to speak in different audiences. So I, I get used to speaking in different cultures. So this recognition, fame, and attention on one side grew. My internal struggle was continuing. My questions on the theology, I felt I was being brainwashed. I had so many challenging questions, but I was asked to shut my thinking down. And on this side, my health went downhill. So in 1997, I, I actually sat with the guru on a one-to-one -one in his room, and I said, I, I feel I'm being brainwashed here. And, and, and that didn't go down too well. <laughs> it, it really didn't. I was quite naive, and I had, this, I had this freeness to say whatever was on my heart. But he didn't like everything I said. And he said that, no, now you're in these orange robes. You're wearing orange robes. Now you die in these clothes and there's no going back. You've run away from home and you're going to finish this journey. I'm going to now put you in London and you have to develop the whole of Europe and Russia. You build the temples, you raise the funds and you build a congregation and I'll see you when I come there in a year's time. So I was on a flight back to <laughs> London. I was placed here in a temple in northwest London which was my headquarters. Initially, I was asked to oversee everything outside of London, so that's Scotland, Wales, Ireland, and the southwest of England, and the whole of Europe and Russia. So developing all of that entailed about 70 to 90,000 miles a year traveling. So my struggles and doubts were growing, but what I did, I did more performance. I got busy. I used busyness to suppress that inner search so Europe is where God sort of started, the God that I know now, God started poking at the borders and boundaries of my mind. This idea I had about God, um, just in an idol in a temple or in a guru, was being shaken through my travels. I used to visit art galleries. And this is where a secret fascination with Jesus Christ started to arise which is really dangerous, it was, it was very dangerous. So I went to Rome 19 times. I only had nine people in my congregation in Rome, but I went 19 times because I just loved the atmosphere of churches. So I went to the Sistine Chapel, and the Swiss guards used to give me a special place to sit, just under the painting of the Last Judgment. So you can see it's this really oxymoron, sort of this guy in orange robes sitting in the Sistine Chapel, everyone's rammed in then, he's got this little quiet place in the corner. But I remember vividly looking up at the paintings by Botticelli and on one side you have the stories of Christ and on the other side John the Baptist. 
And I remember saying to myself that this just makes sense, you know. So my travels and walks within churches sort of grew more and more. It was quite strange for the other priests and some of the senior people of the organization, but because my position was high, my influence was high, they couldn't challenge me so much. And then I remember once I was in the St. Peter's Basilica looking at the statue of La Pieta with Mary and, and, and Jesus on her lap. And there was something so attractive about that, you know, not just the architecture or the sculpture itself, but something was, there was a presence that was so attractive about it. So I told my fellow priest at the time that I'd love a poster of that on the back of my office door. And he looked at me and said, you're getting a bit too complicated here. So this sort of grew. Um, but you see, they knew that for the whole Western organization, there's only one guy who can preach Hindu scripture in English to the level that he can, as in me. So they were very, I'll just give you a context that if I was invited to the US to speak in their national convention, their national attendance would, raise, would rise by 25%. So over 11 days, when you've got 8,000 people coming every day for a convention, it was very key to have me in the equation as playing a very central role. So I knew that in a way that, okay, I can, I can play here a little because I knew that they needed me and I knew that I can do my search. So my brother, who was a priest as well in the US, he was slightly concerned that, you know, I heard you're going into churches a bit too much. And I said, look, I'm just going to study from what these Christians do and what they're up to and how do they do stuff. So we went to the Willow Creek Church um, Bill Hybels is one in, in Chicago. There, you know, I just found a fascinating presence. These people weren't wearing any robes, but they were carrying something so beautiful. I noticed that. One night on Christmas Eve, I snuck out from the temple in northwest London and went to the church on Trafalgar Square for Christmas Mass. And and, and that was at midnight, you know. And, and my f I had a f few friends who used to just take me out in, in, in the middle of the night and just wherever I wanted to go, they'll, they'll take me and they wouldn't question me. So this fascination with Christ secretly grew as I traveled into Europe. I traveled into Europe about 400 times in and out. So the, the Hindu congregation grew from 25 to 500 very quickly. Temples were being constructed in Belgium, in Lisbon, in, in Paris. And so there was that whole infrastructure going on one side, reporting to board. Uh, I was managing about 30 million pounds of property for the board. So you've got to raise funds, you've got to have tithing in place, you've got to have legal systems in place. The constitution of each and every temple within each country had to link with the constitution in London, which had to be overseen by the constitution in India. So you had to do a lot of study of, of the legal system, meet politicians within these countries, ambassadors, diplomats, so that you're all protected. So that whole thing was going on on one side, but this sort of journey with Christ and this fascination grew. My questions and doubts also grew more and more. Now in my talks, I started preaching and talking about a, a bigger God. I didn't know this God, but as my borders and boundaries in my mind was being shaken, I thought, okay, God is bigger than this. God is bigger than this. God is so my talks were slightly out of the box. So I remember in Orlando, I gave a talk. I gave the keynote speech at a, a convention center at the Rosen Plaza Hotel. 
I was asked to speak on a verse and give a 10-minute talk. And I just spoke basically upon my experiences based upon my travels in art galleries, traveling to the Alps and just something out of the box. The crowd went really crazy and I, and I remember and I sat down next to my friend who was a priest from England, he was a dentist, and he said to me, how did you, that was amazing, how did you translate that verse, giving that definition of God's dimension? And I, I remember saying to myself, if only you knew where that came from, it didn't come from any Hindu scripture. So what I noticed that people were liking what I was saying, but it wasn't coming from Hindu doctrine. So this is the strange scenario I was in. You, you had standing ovations, but inside I was decaying more and more. I was getting more depressed. My health went downhill. I was on 40 tablets a day. So I was on homeopathy, allopathy, Ayurvedic. I was taking antidepressants. So it was such a superficial lifestyle. It was very pretentious. On, on the front, you know, you're preaching to thousands and they, they go crazy. And then you go up in your room and you're depressed and you're just sad and you're like, and I was always screaming, somebody get me out of here. So that struggle continued and the organization took me to Harley Street to all the best doctors you can find across the world. 2010, my health really, really went downhill. And in October, I told my PA that I'm stopping everything. I'm parking the European operation. You carry it on, uh, on autopilot. You make all the executive decisions with the team. I'm going to find some clinic somewhere because I can't just go on like this, traveling like this. So I spoke to my brother in the US, and he found out about the Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville, Florida. The Mayo Clinic is like the creme de la creme of, of clinics. So I went to the Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville, Florida, and my health was so bad by then. There was so much internal turmoil. There was so much decay going on inside me. Uh, I had five doctors, each were chairmen of their department, overseeing my case. The Mayo Clinic doesn't take you just because you've got lots of money. They take you if you've got a really rare case, and I was really rare. And they said to me, they looked at me and said, you're this young and you've got all of these issues going on. So it was in this time, 2010 to 11, for 10 months, I was forced to rest. I was forced to take away the busyness and start to sort of handle those deep inner questions, the, this search that I had, this God that I wanted, this something that I need that I'm not getting. After 10 months, I came back um, to London. A lot of my ailments left, but some were still there in a strong way. I came back to London, and I stayed in London for one month. And in those 10 months, I think what was going on in my heart began to articulate in my mind. And so it wasn't really sure. I, I still knew that I'm going to serve this guru for the rest of my life. I'm just going to go for it. This is how a lot of the priests are. Once you're stuck in that system, you're so stuck with fear, shame, and guilt. You know things don't add up. You know things aren't making sense here. You know the theology isn't really founded and it's really unfounded, but you're so stuck in the system because you've not been paid for 20 years. You think, where are you going to go now? So like my brother and like everyone else, we just thought, look, let's just go with this thing and just finish it off now till the end of our lives. You know, even though we don't even believe in this, let's just finish it off and run it like a business. So I rested in London for a month, and then I 
went to um, India to meet the guru because I hadn't seen him in one and a half years. And it's a complicated meeting. So if you, if you get a chance to read the book, you'll, you'll see. So what I did when I was in the Mayo Clinic, what I noticed with myself was that I liked being outside of the system and just being in that sort of clinic environment with people who are not from the congregation. So I made up a lie that I've got cancer polyps and I need to go to the clinic twice a year. So I thought people are buying it. But one of my friends, he leaked it out to India. So that was one thing that was happening. When I landed in London and when I landed in Mumbai, I knew something was up. It's a very, very political environment. And you know, you've got to be quite sharp to navigate through the politics. It was really intense politics. So you've got to have friends everywhere. So as soon as I landed in Mumbai, a couple of friends told me, they look, just be careful. When you go into this meeting, just agree, submit, just say yes to everything. And I said, no, I'm not going to say yes to everything. This was the first time I said, I'm not going to say yes to everything now. And so he said to me, look, it's going to be an explosion. The senior brass are all here, and they're all going to be in the meeting. You're not going to be allowed to see the guru on your own, like you have done for 20 years of your life. I said, OK. So the issue was my theology. The issue was my teaching was outside of the box. And they couldn't find a way to shut that down. So anyway, I went into the meeting, and the guru, it was, it was a really hurtful moment for me, and it was the most shocking moment of my life at the time, because here's someone who was a father-mother figure to me. I literally worshipped him, I meditated, I developed his whole empire, and he was so angry with me for lying, first of all. So I asked for forgiveness, but he just wasn't having it. And then the rest of, of the other senior priests, they said that, look, he needs to get his doctrine straight, he needs to get his theology straight, and we should do this and that. And so the guru said, I'm going to punish you by keeping you in the villages of India. You know, So that's a stark contrast from Europe and Russia and America. And I said, I'm not going to stay in the villages of India. And then he said, OK, then I'm going to put you in a very small town in the US where you have no influence on anyone. So at that time, it, after 20 years of on and off in my heart, it just came out of my mouth. I said, well, I, I don't want to be a priest anymore. It just came out. And, I, I just, and suddenly this silence fell in the whole room. And I felt this weird peace as soon as I said that, but shocked with the guru because he said, fine, go. Where do you want to go? We'll send you wherever you want to go. So it was like, what? You know, after that long, you're just going to you know, throw me out, you know, you've just used my gifts and talents for your purpose. And so my brain just froze and I went down the stairs in my room and I left, you know, it's, it's detailed in the book how I left and that whole departure from orange robes into civilian robes and how you leave. It's, I came back to London and um, he said to me in that meeting, never give a speech again in your life. It's ironic, I'm quite here right now. <laughs> And he said, never contact anyone that you know in the 20 years and will not let anyone contact you. So I was at peace with the whole thing because I knew God wasn't there. I, I knew the whole thing was just unfounded. So I came to London and I stayed in a hotel. My friend who used to oversee PR for me said, come and stay in my hotel in the West End. Just refresh and 
you know, we'll figure out how to get a job for you and start life again at the age of 40. You know, it's like uh, I only had a passport, um, you know, so the, I've mentioned before that the book is a lot about hope because when you become a priest emotionally and physically, you have to detach from everything based upon your childhood. So you don't even communicate with your parents anymore. So you're asked to delete that all from your system, from your psyche, from your whole being. That's the level of renunciation that you take. When you leave, when you leave priesthood, your ordained name is quickly given to somebody else so that people forget you. And all your speeches and all your involvement in all the events are deleted from the whole database across the globe. So you're completely deleted and you, then you're sort of starting life as if you're just a newborn baby. Does that make sense? So I had a passport and that was it really. That's all I had and that suggested my existence. And I had parked the whole idea of spirituality. And then um, I didn't want to do anything with my search with God. Even my sort of attraction with Christ was buried because of my hurt that I recently went through. And then three weeks later, this is in January 2012, I was going to South Kensington Station just for a wander in the West End. And I was crossing the road of uh, Butte Street just by the Zetlin Arms pub. And I just had this strange prompting and my head turned and I saw the spire of H.T. Beach's church, St. Paul's Onslow Square. So I thought, hmm, let me go and sit in that church like I did in Rome. You know, there must be some beautiful paintings in there, all the gold and everything. And, uh, sit, and then I'll go for a wander after that. And I, it was a Sunday morning, it was 11.15 a.m. And then I, and I went down some of the place and I remember walking into the church and there were these really bright, smiley faces at the door. And I'd never seen people smiling like that before. It was like genuine, it was authentic. And the love oozing off them was like so creepy, I couldn't, <laughs> you know, when you're not used to that, you find someone's love really creepy, you're like, can you just stay away from me kind of thing. So they welcomed me at the door and then I went through those red doors and I remember as soon as I went through those red doors, this incredible peace just fell on me. And I was rooted to the ground and this silent whisper in my left ear said, you're home. And that was it. I went upstairs into the pew. I didn't tell anyone who I was, where I was from. I'd never seen worship on guitars and drums before, but I drank it all in. I drank in the sermon. It just made sense. Everything made sense. I was too shy to go for prayer. So I left the church and that day I secretly gave my life to Jesus. And then seven months later I got water baptized. Eighth month I got spirit filled. And then the actual journey of restoration, inner healing, deliverance, what it meant to be a son of God. So then God took me on this really deep journey of not just idols in a temple, but then other idols of titles that you had have to be stripped away. So I have mentioned in my book, the most beautiful part was, there was one time in my life when I was traveling on first class and in chauffeur-driven um, limousines. And here I was, in one season of my life, I had no food, no water, no, no food, nowhere to live, no job. Yet this powerful encounter with Christ, his spirit was so beautiful that I didn't want to go back. There was. I could have contacted some friends and said, hey, can you help me? But this encounter with Christ, with the love of Christ, was so nourishing. It was so deep and so fulfilling. 
I said, I'm chasing this thing, you know, whatever it takes. And for me, it was a, it was a struggle because I'd never known what it's like to have no food. Even growing up, I'd never known what it's like not to have a roof over your head. So it was this whole start, but it was, it struck me that I have nothing externally, no more titles to my name, you know, but I have this encounter with Christ. And then my hunger grew. Um, I went to Bethel after that for, for two weeks, and that changed my whole life to another level. And since then, I've been chasing God, and that's my journey. So I am a Christian, I hope. <laughs> <laughs>